Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank all of you who joined us live at our first Dr. GPCR virtual cafe held on March 26th. Our next virtual cafe will be on April 29th at 11 a.m. EST. Our guest is Dr. Joanne Kamens, the executive director of AdGene. AdGene is dedicated to accelerating scientific discovery by enabling the easy, open sharing of high-quality controlled biomaterials, including those used in GPCR research. To reserve your free ticket, visit drgpcr.com virtual-cafe today. To present your work or your company's technology or to sponsor the Dr. GPCR Virtual Cafe edition, please fill out the form on the cafe's main page. The goal with the Virtual Cafe Talks is to bring you GPCR-focused live presentations every month. You'll be able to join us live and interact with the speakers and attendees. We hope you'll join us on April 29th. To stay on top of all your GPCR news, subscribe today to our monthly newsletter at drgpcr.com newsletter. Last but not least, find us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On our channel, you can watch the latest Dr. GPCR podcast episodes and even the Virtual Cafe Talks. Come check out Dr. Brian Airy's presentation about GPCRs that are involved in modulating flow-induced signaling pathways in vascular endothelial cells. And now, let's dive into our episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR. Welcome to another episode of the Dr. GPCR podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Kevin Flager from the University of Western Australia. Hi, Kevin. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you. I am so happy to have you here, especially we've been trying to schedule this this discussion for a while, and we both have had some. I I've had some technical issues. Um, I'm so happy to have you here. I was looking yesterday at the uh, website of of your group, and I saw that you have so many roles and responsibilities. How do you do it? I have a great team. In fact, I have multiple great teams. So. Um, I think uh, research and innovation is not um, for one person anymore. It's for teams of people. And I think it's about building great teams that you can depend on. And, um, and that's really the secret. That's amazing. So for, for our uh, listeners, I'm just going to list some of these roles. So Director of Biomedical Innovation, Head of Molecular Endocrinology and Pharmacology, Teaching Molecular Pharmacology of GPCRs and Molecular Neuroendocrinology, Chair of Accelerating Australia Executive Committee, and I could go on and on and on. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think you nailed it. It's it's a it's a t- science is a team effort. So how did you get to where you are today with all these arm long roles? So I started off in Cambridge, did uh, natural sciences and majoring in pharmacology. Went up to Edinburgh, University of Edinburgh, um, did my PhD at the uh, uh, Medical Research Council Human Reproductive Sciences Unit, and then came out to Australia 18 years ago. Um, planned to come out, come out for a couple of years, but uh, never went back, which happens a lot when the English come to Australia. And um, yeah, had a number of nationally competitive fellowships. Um, we've got a spin-out company that uh, has been a, a great adventure, uh, and that's just a completed phase two clinical trials. And so really working on that boundary of academic research and translation and um, very exciting, very exciting. How did you get into science in the first place in the UK? 
So I had really good teachers, um, fantastic chemistry and biology and physics teachers, and um, always had a passion for science, always wanting to know how the world works and, and why things happened. And um, so I went to Cambridge and the great thing about a natural science course at Cambridge is that you can have quite a diverse range of courses um, and, um, and specialize up to the, the final year. And, and then the PhD was, um, was a great opportunity. In fact, I, I, I went across to, to Oxford to, um, to interview for a research assistant position and, um, and the, the person I went to see actually sat me down and spent the whole time saying, you don't need, want to be a research assistant. You want to go and do a PhD. So um, it was a most bizarre interview I've ever had, but um, it was great because at that point I didn't even consider doing a PhD and, um, and it really started me on that path. So, uh, so I think I've, I've always been interested in science. I've always loved biology and, um, and since I went to Edinburgh, I always loved GPCRs. Tell us a little bit more about your first contact with, with the GPCR field. So at Cambridge, we studied molecular pharmacology and um, systems pharmacology. And I was always more interested in the molecular aspects. And obviously, GPCRs, such an important drug target um, and important in so many different parts of uh, physiology. So was very, very excited to be getting the opportunity to go to Edinburgh to do a PhD on gonadotrophin releasing hormone receptors. And, um, and yeah, never look back. That's amazing. That's amazing. A lot of us have, have this story where, you know, you accidentally bump into GPCRs at one moment and then you just, you just never stop and you can't let go. And then um, did you, was that your, your first, after your first encounter with, with working on GPCRs, did you decide that you wanted to continue in the field because you liked GPCR so much or was it kind of a natural um, evolution of, of your science? I, th- I think there were so many aspects of molecular pharmacology. I mean, I came out of Cambridge where my lecturers taught me about biosignaling and I went up to Edinburgh and um, I th- this was the thing about Cambridge. You were, you were taught by the, the cutting edge researchers and I went up to to Edinburgh thinking that everybody knew about biosignaling. Um, but this was back in 1998. And I don't think the term had even been coined yet. So we called it all sorts of different things, ligand directed selectivity and all sorts of different um, terms. So, so that was an eye opener to, to realize that I was learning things that, that people who were senior professors didn't know at that time in other parts of the country. So it was, it was, fantastic to know that I was working at the cutting edge discovering things that nobody else knew and that was the great thing about being a PhD student was you were you're working on on things that nobody else knew about never seen before um, and uh, got to travel the world went to conferences in in the US and and Europe and you know just just a a great and and the, the people you work with as well all on the same journey and wherever you go in the world you meet like-minded people particularly in medical research, all striving to eventually improve a patient's life. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I think I, I, I could not agree more. I think having the ability to work with people who are like-minded, who have the same goals and, and being able to go to conferences and meet these people. Well, we can't do it this year, but um, hopefully we'll be able to, to, you know, get together at, at conferences and, and talk GPCRs 
further out. So you're in Edinburgh, you decide to go to Australia. What led you to Australia? Well, there was a, a professor in Edinburgh. Um, in fact, I, I, I went to, to Edinburgh to do a PhD with, um, with Karen Edney and, uh, and she actually moved to Australia just before I got there. So I ended up doing my PhD under um, Robert Miller. And um, I always joked with Karen that, um, that uh, well, you, know, you have to give me a postdoc position now that you've moved to Australia. And, and actually she, she did. And um, so I moved out to Australia again, only, planning to be there for a short time but but loved it got a um a competitive fellowship and um and then started working with dimerics and, and never looked back so um it was it was the the connection with edinburgh that brought me across but um yeah having having established myself here um always keen to stay that's, that's so interesting. I've always wanted to go to Australia. That's one of the continents I haven't been on. So hopefully, hopefully one, one day. Um, so then you're, you're in Australia, you're doing a postdoc. What projects were you working on? Any specific GPCRs that you got interested in uh, compared to, to your PhD uh, training? Well, the irony uh, was that um, since coming to Australia, I've done a lot of work with um, arresting interactions with GPCRs. And of course, the gonadotrophin releasing hormone receptor doesn't interact with the rest, and so it doesn't have a tail. So, so that was uh, that was ironic. But um, I've always worked on, well, largely worked on endocrine receptors. Not 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 entirely, but uh, generally worked on endocrine receptors. Um, being a molecular endocrinologist as well as pharmacologist, so so I've been working on the angiotensin receptor, vasopressin, orexins, um, moving more towards chemokines as well now as well. So but tending towards the, the peptide chemokine end of the spectrum. Any, any preferred receptors or family of receptors in, these, uh, in this list? Yeah, as I say, main, mainly the angiotensin, but, but also the, the function interactions the angiotensin receptor has with a whole range of GPCRs. We've published not only with the um, type 1 and type 2 interacting, but also the interactions with a whole range of GPCRs, but also um, other receptors as well, tyrosine kinases and, and other receptors. So I think you had uh, uh, Thierry Hibbert uh, on earlier, uh, one of your yes. pod podcasts, and um, yep. I listened to that the other day and, and absolutely I would echo everything he said. The angiotensin receptor seems to be pivotal in a lot of these um, function interactions. Exactly. As, as you were speaking, I, I was thinking about the first discussion I had with Terry about the angiotensin receptors. Um, I think it's a, it's a fascinating receptor. I've always worked on chemokine receptors or peptide binding, you know, protein binding receptors. But the discussion with Terry about angiotensin receptor was really, really fascinating. And I think it's a, it's a great system to be, to be studying. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Angiotensin receptors—that's one of your favorites. Can you tell us a little bit more? Uh, so the discussion with Terry was sometime recorded sometime in February this year. Anything new happened in the field of the angiotensin receptor? Well, I think um, there's little things happened since then um, called COVID nineteen, um, <laughs> and uh, and in fact, you know that that uh, with its interaction with the ACE two, um, it does actually have quite a role with the angiotensin receptor system, in fact, and, and we're only just understanding what that is. Um, but in fact, we're, we're, um, we're actually looking to trial um, in the remap cap um, trial uh, to look at the angiotensin uh, chemokine CCR2. So 
um, with DMX200. So yes, absolutely. Angiotensin receptor seems to be very important in, in, um, in COVID-19 and, um, to the extent we're not quite sure yet and there's a lot of work to be done, but, um, but it does seem to have a role. Absolutely. I had this uh, a similar discussion with Paul Insel. Uh, we had a recording about COVID and you know what he was doing during during this, these times. And uh, the first sentence, the first discussion we had, I told him, "I'm pretty sure there's a GPCR involved somewhere <laughs> with, with, with COVID," and it turned out to be to be AT, uh, the, the angiotensin receptor in, in some some form. I just remembered something. So getting back to, to your path, you had mentioned that so you've been in academia, but also there was, you've been working in a spin-off company. Yep. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So that's, that's spun out of the, the University of Western Australia and, and the Harry Perks Institute of Medical Research. Um, <clears throat> it's so founded around 2004, 2005. Um, was a private company for about a decade and then it's um, floated on the stock market in, in Australia um, and it's just completed uh, two phase two trials um, in focal segmental gemosclerosis um, and um, diabetic kidney disease. So, so two forms of kidney disease. Uh, one's an orphan disease and one's obviously uh, more prominent with diabetes. So um, that's very exciting. It's very exciting to particularly when you spend your life working in HEC293 cells, um, you then collaborate with very clever people that work on preclinical models to, to, um, to look at the work you've been doing in, in cell systems. And then, and then you work with very clever clinicians and, and you know, wonderful patients and actually see your theories that have come through those model systems actually bear fruit in, in reality. And um, we still have patients... Uh, taking those medications after the trials are finished with special access. So clearly their doctor feels that it's, it's making a difference. And, um, and certainly we have statistical, clinically significant um, data to say that, that we are seeing improvements in kidney function. So that's very exciting. And, and what's particularly humbling is when you get phone calls from not patients, it's actually the wife or the mother of patients who are desperate to find therapies for um, their loved one. And they ring you up and they say, well, can we get into this trial? And, you know, this is why we, we do research. It's, it's very humbling. How did you get involved with, with the company? I'm more interested into the little anecdotes. Uh, did you always want to, to be involved in, in, I, so you mentioned it too. You really, your work is focused on improving human health on the long term. Mm -hmm. A lot of academic researchers, unfortunately don't get to, to do this, to be involved in clinical trials, be involved in a, in a more biotech type of setting so that they can see their work go into the clinic and go into patients. How did you get involved uh, with this company? Well, I, I, I didn't intend to. Um, I was I was happily beavering away in the academic laboratory with my colleagues um, because again, it's a team team sport. It's not an individual sport, and we developed an approach that that could actually um, enable us to to understand some of these uh, receptor functional interactions and a way of uh, looking at this in, in a different way. And um, it was really a case of well this could actually be commercialized and this could actually be taken forward and, and be used as a, 
discovery engine to find these novel interactions. Um, so I had a choice. I could either um, work with the company and take this forward or move off and do something else. And, and so I thought, well, no, I'm quite keen to, to see this through. And, um, and it was exciting. And, um, and it's, 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 it's been very good, both from the point of view of helping us get closer to patient care, but also from funding. Um, we're not constantly having to chase grant funding. We have a diversification of income. And I would encourage any young academic that is looking to start a career to think about different ways of funding their laboratory and, and working with companies, with biotech companies, accessing these different sources of funding. It's, it's a good way of ironing out the, uh, the inconsistency of grant funding, shall we say. Right. And um, since we're talking about grant funding, how what's the status of grant funding in Australia? Everyone in the U.S. knows that it's getting harder and harder to get funding uh, in the U.S. and in Canada as well. How does that look in Australia? Yeah, it's 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 becoming harder and harder to get funding for fundamental research. But there is a lot of funding available for translational research. So if you have a clinical focus, if you have a commercial focus, it's becoming easier in terms of um, there are more funding schemes available. But it's different because if you want to access clinical funding, you obviously need to work with clinicians. And if you want to access commercial funding, you need to work with industry partners. And it's a different skill set. You have to interact with industry, you have to understand industry's needs. You have to understand the whole commercialization process, not, not from the point of view of being a, a CEO, but from the point of view of more, more of a CSO. So you need to understand uh, enough about the process to go and speak to people, have a management team around you, people that, are, that understand business and regulatory affairs and all of these things that we don't really think about as molecular pharmacologists. And, and so it, it's, it's a different skill set. And, and um, so for fundamental researchers that have been very, very skillful uh, at writing grants and publishing papers and writing grants and publishing papers, for them to suddenly be told, well, actually, no, you need to go and talk to industry partners. You need to engage with them. You need to uh, pitch to them. Um, you need to get venture capital. Um, these are very different skill sets and a very different world. Do you feel that your experience uh, with, with the company that, that you mentioned before gave you access to developing these skill sets? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I've spent many, many years traveling around the world, um, giving talks to, to rooms of, of executives who, who are interested in different things. Um, and um, after a while you, you, you get used to that. And, um, and, in some respects, I prefer it because if I build a relationship with a partner and they want to work with me and they are willing to commit funds to, to my project, and as a consequence of that, I can go to leverage a grant from, from, um, from government with a higher success rate, I prefer that than putting in a grant to um, uh, a panel which has a 10% success rate and it may just be on that day. There were so many fantastic grants that mine just 
didn't make the cut. And I think um, I actually prefer being able to, to interact with the people that I'm getting the money from. Of course. How did, how did you get ready for that? How was your first presentation to, you know, key stakeholders who, who had the checkbook on, the, on, on their desks? I mean, I, I've always done a lot of public speaking, um, even from being at school. So I've never had a problem with public speaking. Um, I think if, if you're nervous about public speaking, that is, that is something you can learn and practice. And the more you do it, the more it becomes second nature. Um, I think really it's a case of the more you, you have these conversations, the more you understand. It's about empathy. It's about understanding what is the person sitting on the other side of the room want from this discussion? And it's about the win-win. And um, I think at the end of the day, everybody involved in, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry or, or academic research, we're all interested in treating patients, improving patient lives. Whether people make money from that or not, that's actually secondary. If, if the patient gets a benefit, then people will make money. So let's, let's make sure the patient gets the benefit and then everybody gets what they want. I was asking this mainly for, for our audience to kind of give an idea to, to junior scientists and young scientists on how to think about these problems and how to move ahead and not think just about writing grants and sending them to, you know, to, to government organizations. Because as we mentioned before, it's getting harder and harder to get funding for um, you know, basic research. And sometimes I'm starting out, the starting point in my, in my mind, the thought process is that if I hadn't gone out of the lab and haven't worked in a biotech company, I would have never understood how these processes go. So it's very important to diversify, be open, and, and try and learn new things. And it's, it's may, it may be feeling or it may be scary in the beginning, but you just have to keep at it and do it. Yeah, and absolutely. I love, I love that you said that, you know, the whole goal is to think about what does, what does the other person in front of me uh, want and how can we work together so that we can make it a win-win situation. Absolutely. And I think um, it's possible to get internships and placements and any of these opportunities you can take to spend time with a company um then take them i think it's not it's not wasted time it's uh, it's all good life experience and um that these are the skills that um that we need to take forward and i think it's also important if you're doing a phd to realize that a phd is not just a training in working at a bench and writing a thesis it's so many other things and in fact one of, the, one of the things that I remember back when I was doing my PhD is that we got to go on a week-long residential course uh, to actually understand teamwork skills. And, and we thought this was another one of these, uh, you know, waste of, waste of a week, weren't we, in the lab. But it was a fantastic experience. And it taught us that we have so many skills we're learning when we do our PhD, whether it's about time management, people management, if we work in a team, managing a budget, often um, resourcing. These are all business skills. And these are all skills that they might be given different buzz terms in different um, sectors. But at the end of the day, you are learning skills and those can be transferred. And people talk about transferable skills. Well, PhD is, a, is three, three, four years, however, many, however long it takes you, um, 
it's a it's a training in transferable skills and i think people need to realize that and and i also think it's important that when people finish their phd whether or not they go on to do a postdoc there are so many amazing avenues that they can take their career they don't need to stay in an academic laboratory they can go into industry they can go into teaching they can go into politics they can go into business there are so many avenues that they can take and the PhD is great training for that, regardless in which direction they go. The analytical skills you learn with a PhD are second to none. I could not agree more. I think uh, I think a lot of PhDs, and I can count myself in that group when, when I was doing my PhD, thought that you can only do basic science in an academic lab and be at the bench. And the goal of the PhD is just to learn how to pipette and how to think scientifically. But now that I've kind of evolved away from that, I realized that you could be doing anything. So somebody with an MBA uh, is good at maybe good at business, but will never be as good as you are as a PhD at science. But you can learn the the you know the the business skills as a PhD without having to go and do an MBA. And absolutely, this, this is something that not a lot of people realize. And I hope that the PhD students and the postdocs listening uh, benefit from 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 our conversation at this point when it comes to these transferable skills. Um, getting back a little bit to science, so I was uh, looking at your Google Scholar uh, page and I've seen a lot of papers that say Brett, Nano Brett. Speaking of technology, how did you get into uh, developing these tools to better understand GPCR and beta REST and interactions and, and, and in the field and to contribute to the field? Yeah, it's, it's always been something that we've been keen to do is to push the envelope. Um, understand how we can look at protein-protein interactions, complexes, how we can actually use the, the, the bioluminescence residue transfer, which if you've been in Michelle's lab, I'm sure you're very familiar with, um, and, and really push the envelope. And, and for example, the, the ligand binding assay uh, with Nanobret, um, which is fantastic, and people are adopting that more and more now, um, the CRISPR system. Uh, so I need to credit um, Carl White, uh, who's really driven that, a, a postdoc in my lab. And um, I think, I mean, and obviously Michelle has, has done a huge amount uh, in this area as well. I mean, to actually, to develop these systems. And what I love as well is I go around the world and um, so many people are using Brett now. Uh, a few years ago, there were only a handful of us uh, around the world that were using it. It was a, very much a niche technology, but now pretty much every GPCR lab, I think, uses Brett, which which is pretty incredible, actually. And um, I think it's really become the go-to technology for molecular pharmacology. And uh, that's that's very exciting. And just to know that I've been played a little part in 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 that uh, is 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 really nice. It is no secret that I'm I'm a Brett fan and I'm a Brett person. <laughs> so every time there is any project that involves protein-protein interaction, understanding the function of something or a conformational change in something, the first thought I have is let's just do some Brett on it. Absolutely, and why not? I think it's of course, and I think it it gives what I really enjoy about it is that it's done in live cells. You can, uh, you know, adapt it to 96 well plates, 384 well plates, and you can get an, an enormous amount of data in a very short period of time. And, and it gets you to the next level where you can actually 
go beyond the technology, but get the answers that you're looking for uh, as a scientist. Absolutely. And I think the real-time aspect is, is critical. The number of times we see very interesting profiles. And um, if you were to do an endpoint assay, you would completely miss, miss the point because you've missed the peak or, you know, the, the, and, and a lot of the time you get a signature and, um, and you can compare those signatures and, and, and see a lot of nuance. So I think the real-time live cell aspect, as you said, is critical and, and why I really like the, the, the approach. Again, I could not agree more. I was having a similar discussion last week with uh, Sam Hoare, who is uh, a consultant at Pharmacanics, and uh, we were talking about analyzing this data. So he presented at the Dr. GPCR Summit. He gave a talk about how to analyze kinetic data when you're looking at GPCR activation. And I had shown him two of my publications, one in 2011, one in 2016. And we were looking and he, he, he told me, so, so you did time courses? And I said, of course, because if you don't look at what happens live during a period of time, how can you dissect all of these, um, all of these traces? Unfortunately, I didn't have the skills to analyze the data. So actually we're going back right now and analyzing my time course data with, with his method of analysis to see if we can get any new information out of there. Mm, very nice, very nice. And I, and I think um, biosignaling is a good example as well. A lot of biosignaling is probably um, has a kinetic component and, and people have not seen the, the time window um, and, um, and you can actually get very different bias depending on the time point you choose. So whenever anybody shows a web of bias or, or these, these spider plots, yeah. um, I always like to ask, at what time point was each of those done? <laughs> exactly. And it's so interesting because you had mentioned that one of the receptors that you've been working on other than the angiotensin is CCR2. Mm -hmm. That's one of, one of my favorites. And I think it, it gave, so it, it, as you know, and I'm pretty sure um, the, the listeners also know that it binds multiple natural chemokines. And I was a little bit disappointed when, when I worked on CCR2 because I was trying to see if there is any bias there, but all I was able to show is that there is a rank order between, of uh, efficacy between these chemokines, but still I'm pretty sure that there is something that we could have dug deeper and seen over time, you know, th those biases that happen. Yeah, yep. still lots to do. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so you've worked in academia, you have... Uh, experience working with with a biotech company, getting compounds, getting tools uh, up up and running. Do you think biotech companies and pharma is still interested in working on GPCRs? Yes, I, I do. I think um, I think a lot of pharma companies are looking at data science and looking at mapping signaling pathways and 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 very much moving more towards this sort of looking for new targets but I, I do think the industry goes in waves and uh, i think they are they've never gone away from gpcrs i think gpcrs is are, are an important target um as you know and other other people on your podcasts have have said there aren't that even though there's a, a very large number of gpcr drugs out there they actually target a very small number of receptors and I think there's still an awful lot of potential for, for targeting GPCRs. I think um, we've still got a lot to learn in terms of 
how GPCR is complex and which other proteins are involved and the allosteric modulation that results from that. And I think there's a lot of nuance that we can still learn, which will enable us to target with, with higher specificity. So I think there's, there's still a lot to do. I think we just need to change the way we, we screen and we profile rather than doing more compounds and, and just, you know, getting larger and larger sets. We just need to change the way we're looking at things. Could you elaborate on how you think we should change the way, uh, um, the way we're looking at things? So I think um, looking at complexes is, is one example. If, if whenever I give a talk, I, I always talk about traditionally screening has happened with receptors in isolation, but in reality, in the body, these receptors are complexing. They're interacting with the cytoskeleton, with other proteins, with other receptors, and that will change their conformation. That will change their ability to bind whether they're actually interacting at the cell membrane or inside the cell. Um, there's a lot we still have to learn. And, um, And I think if we understand those nuances, we can then find new ways to screen and profile with that new knowledge. And I think that that then uncovers a whole new potential for uh, drug discovery. Do you think there are any tools or initiatives that we need to take to speed up measuring these nuances? Are we missing something? Is there more? Well, the answer is pretty much yes. Is there any extra work to be done to get these tools? But what kind of tools you can think of that could help us capture these nuances? So I think there's two answers to that really. One is, one is tall compounds that um, can actually target these complexes in their distinct conformations. Um, if we can work to, to develop those tools, they may not necessarily be great drugs, but, they, but at least if we get, get some tall compounds to actually understand the, the pharmacology, um, That's one aspect. The other aspect is, is moving towards the cellular systems, the organoid, the organoid chip type systems. And I'm deputy, one of my hats um, is deputy director of the Australian Research Council Centre for Personalised Therapeutics Technologies. And in that centre, I'm working with some, some very talented people across uh, the country. So that centre is spanning Melbourne, the University of West Australia and, and Monash University. And um, people developing organoid systems and organoid chip systems that can start to look at systems that are human, but obviously not patients. So, so moving away from a hectic three cell more towards um, uh, a more physiologically relevant system. I think that's uh, that's every every science, basic scientist dream is not to have to respond to reviewers saying, yes, "Well, it's, is this physiologically relevant?" And yes, I think we all agree that hex cells are a great tool, but it's not enough. And having you know a more um, you know more, I want to say more specific, a more a system that's closer to to what happens in the body without having to uh, without you know giving using humans as uh, as guinea pigs is is very important absolutely that's amazing um so i know we've talked about this just a little bit earlier about you know uh, young scientists and, and junior and junior scientists and what they can do to you know wear multiple hats like you're wearing any other advice for junior scientists 
who wants to who want to contribute to the field um it's i think it's always welcome from from people who wear so many hats as you do i think the key is to to seek good mentors um i think it's very very hard to do it on your own and um I think if you can work with people that are happy to give you introductions, um, if somebody's invited to speak but they can't make it, if they're happy to offer that invitation to you, whether it's reviewing for journals or whatever it might be, um, having people that look out for you and your career I think is very important and will become increasingly important. And I think something in the current situation with COVID-19, I spend every day on Zoom and um, I'm connecting with people that I know and I've got relationships with and, and so we can connect on Zoom and that's absolutely fine. But I think if I was a young researcher, I'd find it very, very difficult because I can't bump into people at a conference. And um, I think as senior researchers and senior academics um, and leaders, we need to be actually looking out for, for the younger researchers who don't have those introductions who are missing out on those introductions and making those connections for them because um you you know and, and I've, I've spent a long time in western australia we all were locked down for a little while so everybody was zooming so even though i was in london it was fine because i was it might have been five four o'clock in the morning or something but at least i could be on the same zoom call as everybody else but but then as soon as people started to go back to having um face-to-face meetings they would they would still have you zooming in but then you were the person and everybody else was was in the room and and they just forgot about you and you couldn't hear the questions and they forgot to pass the microphone around and and then oh let's go for drinks afterwards and carry on talking it's like ah that'll that'll be me hanging up now so um i think we we need to realize we're in a new world um we're probably going to be doing zoom conferences for quite a while um at least for another year i suspect in a lot of cases and um and in some respects that's wonderful because my travel budget is certainly uh healthier than it was uh, last year uh but um but those those connections over a over a coffee over a beer at the end of a conference we're, we're not getting those and i think um we just need to be aware of that I think, uh, as, as you mentioned, Zoom Zoom has become, if I have a five-year-old who knows how to navigate Zoom, go on a Zoom call Absolutely. because, because of COVID. So I think we, we're, we're getting younger and younger people getting on Zoom and know what, what Zooming means. Mm. Um, it certainly has its advantages. I think a lot of people, since there were so many GPCR-related conferences, but I think other conferences that are virtual, it breaks down barriers. It gets rid of, you know, uh, travel budgets, especially if you're a trainee and you need to ask for permission to, to go to these conferences, but it's not the same thing as sitting, you know, in front of each other, having dinner or feeling as, as a student or as a trainee, feeling awkward at a conference where it's dinner time and you're sitting at a table and the, the keynote speaker just sits down at your table and you have to talk to them. And yep. at some point you realize that they're just as human as, as you are. Absolutely but they're just more experienced and uh, you can learn so much from, from them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before, before I leave, you have two, two last questions. We've talked about science. We've talked about the fact that you wear multiple hats and, and being, having the, the ability to work in a big team 
is what allows you to be able to wear multiple hats. Were there any um, aha moments during your career trajectory as a scientist that uh, showed that you know surprised you or you know gave you the indication that you're in the right place at the right time? I, th I think working with dimerics and um, and just as we reached every milestone from that, particularly when the trial results came out and they were positive and we were actually seeing the protein levels in the urine going down in, in the patients. And I think, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time publishing papers and, and coming up with theories and, and writing about our arresting interactions with our receptors in a H293 cell, but to actually realize that we were actually impacting patients. I think I, th I come back to that again. I think, um, you know, that, that is really why I think most people get into medical research. And, um, and I th it's really driven me to, to not only uh, pursue my research, but also help others. And that's why I'm director of biomedical innovation, because I spend a lot of my time mentoring people, helping set up courses and and um, working with others that are very good at running courses and I tend to be the one that gets the money and other very clever people run the courses but it's all about facilitating others to be able to go down the journey that I've been on and I realize that it's not an easy journey and there's often there isn't a set path and I think uh, often we come out of university and um, we've gone through our school we've gone through our our undergraduate degree and we go and do an honours project and a PhD and we do a postdoc and there's a very clear path. But um, I think this entrepreneurship path in its very nature is not set. And, um, and I think um, I spoke to one person that went through um, one of the courses not that long ago and I said, do you know what you're, you're doing, you know, next year? And she said, I have no idea. And it's so exciting. And um <laughs> And that's that to me. That was the perfect answer because so many uh, young researchers I speak to, they don't know where their next postdoc is coming from, and they're scared, and they they want to, they 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 can't see a career path. But I'm I'm seeing people now coming through these training courses that are just excited about the possibilities. This world is opening up to them, and I think um, that's a, that's a great thing because it is very exciting. Uh, we're very well positioned as medical researchers to to help society. And I think that's been demonstrated by COVID-19. So I think um, we should be optimistic about the role we can play going forward. I love, I love the, that answer that that person gave you. I don't know when I find it very exciting. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, um, again, coming out of my own experiences, a lot of times I felt, especially as a, as a, as a trainee, that it needed to happen the way I had imagined it. And uh, with COVID, what had happened to me in 2020 is that I felt like I was on a, on a train, on a set track, and then COVID hit and the tracks just disappeared. Mm, mm. And, uh, that's, and that's the best thing that ever happened because here we are today talking to you and I'm doing podcasts and talking to everyone, a lot of people around the world. And the goal is to interview everyone who works in the GPCR field. And hopefully the, we'll reach that thousands ep, thousand episode on the podcast. And yes, it's frightening not to know what's next. But at the same time, I think the, the, the reward or the excitement of the journey uh, compensate for that, that moment where you realize, well, wait a minute, I'm not on track anymore. 
I'm not on the track that I thought I would be on. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So last, uh, last but not least question, you're in Western Australia, the other end of the world. I'm in Boston. If mm-hmm. you have any job openings uh, in your team, where can people find you? And do you usually um, in your team have people from all around the world or how does, how does your team look? So we have, we have had people from all around the world, um, from, from Algeria, from Glasgow, from certainly from the UK, um, from New Zealand, from Sri Lanka, um, so from Malaysia. Um, so absolutely from all over the place. Um, again, the wonderful thing about science is it's, it's about a shared interest and a shared passion for helping people and um, that's shared around the world. Um, I'm on the International Advisory, Advisory Group of the British Pharmacological Society and I, I work with people from every continent and it's just wonderful. Um, so in terms of job adverts, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't advertise um, positions. Um, I think uh, if you're a young person, you're looking for a job in, in medical research, the best thing you can do is, is network, um, go to conferences when you can, but if not, um, use the networks you have through your mentors and, and connect with people because most jobs don't get advertised. Um, they, they are by word of mouth. They're through references. They're through interactions at conferences. And um, I, I've, I've hired somebody over as after a zoom call before, but, but generally I hire people after I've met them at least at a conference. Um, so, um, so yes, it needs that, uh, it needs that personal touch. And I think, um, that's, uh, that's something to, to always remember. That's great. So people, um, I think one of, and you're not the only, you're not the first guest who, who tells this, I think it's all about finding what you're interested in and reaching out to the people who are doing the science that you're interested in. And even if you get rejected or say, well, I don't have the space right now, or you cannot come to my lab. I think those connections that you form on the long run, uh, if you keep an open mind, they will at some point go around and, um, and lead you to the door that you, you're supposed to go through. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Thank you so much, Kevin, for your time. I think we had a, I had a lovely, lovely time. I love to learn about the multiple hats that you're wearing the way I see them is that you have this shelf with all these hats, and depending on where you're going that day, you can put on that hat. But uh, I think the take home message is go out there, do the best you can focus on the science and also think about the impact that you can have. And it's a marathon and a team effort. Absolutely. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thank you. Bye, Kevin. Thank you for joining us for this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our guests as well as our team members, Attila Forrest, Shivani Sajdev, and Jin Chong. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter at drgpcr.com newsletter. You can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast if you think we deserve it and share our podcast with your colleagues. Until next time, stay safe.